Hey, I'd like to welcome everybody to this episode of White Skinned, a podcast with white people talking about weight, whiteness, and about race and uh, social constructs, politics, history, all that good stuff, wherever the, wherever the conversation flows to. Uh, my name is Steve Hintz, and I'm your host. Um, I'm really excited today to uh, you know, be talking to my guest here, a man who's not afraid to throw down the gauntlet when it comes to race and race work and kind of pushing the conversation forward. Uh, so my first guest, he's among the most prominent anti-racist writers and educators in the United States. Uh, for the past 25 years, he's spoken to audiences all over the country, uh, high school campus, uh, high school campuses, college campuses, where, where we first uh, kind of encountered each other here at the University of Arkansas, um, teaching anti-racist work to uh, different conferences, military, government, all that good stuff. Uh, you've written nine books. He's written nine books here. The latest book, Dispatches from the Race War. Uh, also under the influence, Dear Amer White America, Letter to a New Minority and Colorblind, along with your memoir, White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. So that was the first uh, kind of introduction for me to your work, too. So I'd like to welcome everybody. Uh, Tim Wise here to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Fourth of July just passed. Um, you know, one of your one of your uh, most recent works, I was just, you know, I took a look at it, obviously, was moved by it. Um, I'm always excited to hear what you have to say and kind of your, your commentary on things, having such a, you know, such a long history here. And, you know, I, I think your call for people to come to patriotism and what is patriotism and what does it look like for everybody? And it's kind of a different thing. Um, and how can we move the country, uh, keep moving the country in a better direction? How do you feel like this argument is going? I mean, how do you feel it comes across to folks? Well, you know, I mean, I have a lot of ambivalence around that whole subject of patriotism and, and, and such that, you know, in the past, uh, I wrote a piece back during the aftermath of 9-11 um, that was actually titled Patriotism is Pathology. And the argument there was basically, you know, that I rejected it because it so easily devolves into nationalism and ends up being used to justify war. I still believe that, but I also know that, um, we have to be really careful, those of us on the left and in the social justice, racial justice community, not to completely cede the ground to the right, right, when it comes to the notion of love of country. And so even though I reject patriotism as a practical matter, because I know it almost always devolves into nationalism, not just here, but in other countries as well, I'm sure. Um, but I also want to say, if we're going to have it, right? If, if there's going to be this thing, and we know there is going to be, then we have to carve out a space to say, well, this is the America that we love, right? This is what we love about the country. And the reality is, look, I mean, there are lots of things that I love about the people of this country, the social movement history of this country. Um, the struggle is part of this country's history. And, and I hate the fact that it's been necessary because of a system of white supremacy, but I love that it emerged and that black and brown folk have led that struggle, particularly black folk for hundreds of years. And, and some of us who are white folk have been part of it. Like there's a lot to love and a lot to cling to and to connect to. Sadly, that's not what we normally talk about on July 4th or, or whatnot. It's not what we normally focus on when we think about love of country, um, but it's what we ought to, it's what we ought, it's also the way I've come to peace with being a Southerner, you know, being, yeah. being someone who's lived in the South my whole life. I could either spend that time hating 
the South for its provincialism and for clinging to the Confederacy, uh, even 160 years after it fell, I can do that. And I spent a lot of my childhood, you know, trying to run away from having any kind of a Southern accent, uh, trying to avoid <laughs> any kind of acknowledgement of any of that, because there was so much shame associated with it. But then I realized, and I tried to remember, you know, that, that the freedom movement also grew out of this sort. Right. And mm -hmm. not just the black led part of it, but even the white folks that were the strongest allies and 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 uh, co-conspirators in the struggle for racial justice came out of the South. It wasn't just a bunch of northern kids that came south sent by their parents in the 60s to free us, you know, and, and free black folk in the South. It was southerners as well. You know, it was Bob. It was Bob Zellner. It was uh, Virginia Foster Durr. It was Ann and Carl Braden. It was it was people in the South. It was John Fee in Kentucky. It was people who came out of this soil. And so I'm trying to say, look, let, let's try to to the extent possible. And I don't know if it's possible, but I think it's worth the, worth the attempt. Try to reclaim that part of the South for those of us who are Southern, but America for those of us who are not. And, and even for those who are, that is something we should be proud of and it's different than what those MAGA folks say right because I mean their thing is they want to make America great again and what we're saying is we want to make America great really for the first time drawing on some of the traditions of resistance that are uniquely American in some ways that are specific to our country uh, and try to make the country what it what it said it was. And, and if we didn't love the country, we wouldn't bother, right? I mean, if we didn't love it, we would just say, screw it, man. We'd go live off the grid in, 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 uh, in the mountains somewhere and just stay to hell with it, right? It's the fact that we do care that makes us fight. And I think that's what that's what I'm trying to say, you know, with that July 4th piece that you referenced and and just in general. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really cool um, kind of way of framing the conversation and providing a bridge maybe for some folks to find that patriotism and to find that excitement about, yeah. you know, the founding fathers had this idea unrealized, uh, obviously for most everybody. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, a, it was a thought. And to think that you can create the language around that that engages more people who have, you know, been left out of that conversation to see a way in the future, especially the outsized impact that America's had on anti on, on white supremacy around the world and anti-blackness around the world. Maybe, like you said, that leadership for the movement for the world comes out of here as well. I mean, with some of those conversations. I mean, in some ways, right. I mean, if, if the argument is, and I think it is, you'll hear black folks say this and, and other folk of color will say it, look, white folks, y'all made the mess. You got to be part of cleaning this up, right? It can't just all fall to, to black and brown peoples. Um, and it's true. If you make the mess, you know, it's like you go into a store and you break it, you bought it, right? If you, mm -hmm. if you break the country, you have to take some responsibility for that. And I think on a global level, as you've just said, if, if, if the United States has, and we have, you know, exported white supremacy, made it a global brand, um, uh, and, and really exported anti-blackness, so much so that you know, there are, there are black folk in sub-Saharan Africa today who are bleaching their skin with toxic chemicals and dying from that. That didn't happen 500 years ago. That didn't happen 1500 years ago. That didn't happen in ancient African uh, civilizations and kingdoms. Just like you have people in Asia, uh, in, in various Asian nations that are trying to change the fold of their eye to meet Western beauty standards, also using uh, various toxic chemicals to bleach their skin lighter. That too did not happen, you know, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago. So if in fact the United States has exported this white supremacy, anti-blackness and other forms of white supremacy, um, we do have a unique role 
in fixing it. Now, having said that, uh, you know, if I were somebody outside the United States, I wouldn't exactly trust Americans. To fix it, <laughs> well, sure, right? yeah. Just like if I'm black, I don't really trust white people to do all that work. I, you got to be part mm-hmm. of it. You got to be in it. But if I'm black or brown, I still want to make sure I'm checking on white people. And if I'm living in Nigeria, if I'm living in 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 Chile, if I'm living in Mexico, wherever it is, I'll, I want to make sure I'm checking on the U.S. as well and trying to make sure that they're not going it alone, because I don't think we have a real good track record, obviously. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, and you alluded to something, too, about black and brown folks having kind of the the um, never really having been wrong about issues of racial justice, obviously, with the, the role that has been going on in this country and and knowing kind of having the answers to a lot of this just in, in the simple fact that they know the truth isn't it? <laughs> about uh, white supremacy, anti-blackness. Where does that leave you and me as, you know, kind of uh, engaging white folks to the conversation, people who don't even think that this conversation has to take place, but getting people to listen to black and brown leaders who have a lot of that perspective that we need in order to get out of this situation, but not, A, not, not using our white maleness to kind of have the answer or think we have the answers, but right. you know, what is our role here in the, as the, in the middle? Well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's no, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet that, that, that gets people to pay attention or, or magic words that, that get people to really take it seriously. I do think in my experience, you know, the, the, the way to try to bring people in um, is not so much, I mean, we can hit them over the head with a lot of facts and, 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 you know, data and statistics and information about systemic racism. And, you know, and I do that in some of my books, they're heavily footnoted, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and we also know what the social psych research says, which is that facts don't change people, right? Like people actually don't come to the Lord uh, based on facts, so to speak, right? <laughs> right, right based on their own faith, they do it based on their feeling. And so you have to actually approach people. And it's somewhat counterintuitive, right? The, the white way of doing things, frankly, the, the very Eurocentric way of doing things is just like, let me hit you over the head with all this, all these facts. Mm-hmm. I don't have to give you an analysis. I don't have to tell you stories. Narrative doesn't matter, right? It's just this sort of quantitative method. Mm-hmm. And, and there's value in the quantitative method. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make this essentialist argument that some fools make, which is like science is white. No, science is not white. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's absurd. But the European tradition has a particular way of coming to look at facts and information. Mm-hmm. And I think it clouds our ability to actually see um, other ways of understanding what is true. It's not always just quantitative. It's learning to hear people's stories. It's learning to actually listen to what people say. It's sharing our own stories. In my experience, I can actually get white folks to think more about systemic racism and white supremacy, white privilege by telling stories about my own observations of it. Those emotions are re-stimulated and used uh, to kind of sway people and to, and to, uh, uh, to kind of influence people and keep people separated. And, and it's real intentional work, right? I mean, a lot of those things you talked about were intentionally kind of put in the system in the beginning to keep people, those stories and the emotion work. And it's, it's still reinforced a lot in our media and all that stuff. So that's kind of a systemic pressure, isn't it? From you know, kind of a socialized pressure as well. So how is that needed? Is that level of socialized pressure needed to be lifted in order to really influence? Or are you talking about like individual work between people? How far can that get us? You know, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think I think trying to completely undo socialization around, you know, racialized fear is uh, that's the work of, of many lifetimes. Right. I, I don't I don't anticipate that we're going to be able 
to undo the psychology of white supremacy entirely um, in any short period of time, because this is hundreds of years and multiple generations of ingrained um, conditioning, propaganda, et cetera. And, and, and I think, um, I can't prove this, but I think it's reasonable to conclude that to some extent, that fear, that anxiety around white domination and the fear of what happens if we as white people don't maintain it is transmitted, not just in terms of what we teach our children and grandchildren on down through the generations. I think it's actually transmitted at a cellular level, like all this research on epigenetics, right, which talks about the intergenerational transmission of trauma for right. black and brown peoples, right, that they literally, there's a biological encoding of trauma, which is transmitted to children. And my argument would be, well, if that's true, and science is starting to tell us that, we've seen research in England that's proven that, research out of Emory in Atlanta that's actually shown that as well. Um, if trauma can be transmitted, why can't the numbing that white supremacy requires also mm -hmm. be transmitted, right? If I have to numb my emotions to do harm to other people and maintain my advantage, and I have to transmit fear to justify the subordination of other human beings, you're telling me that I don't, that that doesn't get embedded in me yeah, biologically? Absolutely. I think it does. I think yeah, it gets sure. transmitted. And so that's going to take a lot of time to undo. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, what we can do, though, I think, while we're working on unspooling that, um, is, is say to people, listen, I get it. I get it. it. It's scary, you know, to think about equity and fairness when you've been used to hegemony and unfairness, because any level of sharing, any level of pluralism, um, even not even real equity, just pluralism, just, just a more equitable situation feels like oppression when you've had everything, right? Or when you've had nearly everything. And so it is scary. I acknowledge that. I get it. And not only that, but it would get you killed at some point. I mean, right. in history, if you try to even reach across the lines, I mean, that, that was dangerous as well. I mean, physically, I think. Well, I it was. That. I mean, and so, so you're afraid, right? I mean, James Baldwin talked about, about the fear that white people learn uh, about being turned away from the welcome table of white society. Mm -hmm. uh, the theologian Tandeaka talks about in her book, Learning to be White, which is an amazing book mm. about how you know, white folks are conditioned and, and taught very early by parents, by their loved ones, by their caretakers, mm -hmm. what it means to be white. And there's a separation that is presumed and it, and it, and it really develops around the time of, of adolescence when kids mm -hmm. start dating. And, you know, most, most white folks don't have a problem when their kids play with kids that are of a different race when they're real little, you know, when everybody's real right, deep, right? Mm -hmm. and the stereotypes don't really kick in. But when it starts to get to be about adolescent age, that's when that fear kicks in. That's when those white folks have been taught to like, you need to cleave to your own kind. And, and, and sometimes it's said directly. Sometimes it's said very indirectly. It's said by the fact that, you know, 85% of white folks live in neighborhoods with virtually no black people around. What message does that send to the child, right? Even if their parents are very like, you know, progressive politically or whatever, if they don't go to school with very many black kids, if they don't see very many black kids, if they don't recreate with black kids, if they're not around black people, the message being sent is being white means being over here, right? With our stuff and with our people, even if you're not saying that directly. And so, so I can get how if you're trained to think that way, if you're really raised to think that way, the thought of moving into a different space can be scary, even if you don't buy into all the like really hostile racist stereotypes. It's just the thought of change. It's just the thought of like losing what you're used to. See, if you're mm -hmm. black or brown, you know that life is adaptation. Like, like black and brown folks have always had to just sort of, 
you know, figure out how to how to grind it out and how to create and carve out for themselves what they could. And white folks haven't had to do that. So now if you're telling me I got to share, even if you can show me that 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 I'm not going to I'm not going to get hurt, it's I'm not going to be oppressed. We're not going to just flip over the oppression dynamic and now we're going to be on like pluralism means we're going to share everything you know it's going to be better but yeah, I still right. am afraid because it requires me to come out of a place that I'm used to so what I think we have to do is there are two options we can either try and like debunk the fear but that's a long-term project or we can say listen I get it it's scary but you know what's scarier sticking with what we have right now and here's mm -hmm. why actually it's okay to be afraid but let me you're you're, you're fearing the wrong thing like the things mm -hmm. you ought to be afraid of is 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 what happens if you cling to this lie of white supremacy what what mm -hmm. happens to your culture what happens to your society and i think there's a lot of evidence right now covid is a great example of it. like the reason that we've lost 600,000 plus people and we still aren't done with this thing yet is precisely because early on in the pandemic, when the when the evidence came out that said this was disproportionately killing black people mm -hmm. in the city, mm -hmm. you had people in the highest positions of government who were like, oh, for real, it's not us. Oh, well, then screw it. Like, yeah. it's not it's not red states. It's not small rural areas. It's not white. It's those black people. Oh, it's yeah. black people in New York and Chicago and L.A. and brown folk in L.A. Oh, screw it. Let's open everything back up. We don't have to. We don't have to social distance. Screw that, yeah. right? And you had all these white people showing up with guns and camo at the state capitol, saying they want everything open and they don't mm -hmm. want to. They don't want to stand six feet away from somebody at Trader Joe's because you know what? <laughs> that, concentration camps and shit. So all of a sudden, why did that happen? That nonchalance came directly from the racialized antipathy toward black bodies and black mm -hmm. communities. So if you say, well, it's not us, screw it. I'm going to take my foot off the brake now. We were starting to break. We were wearing masks. Mm -hmm. We were thinking about mm -hmm. social distancing. We were shutting shit down. But oh, wait a minute. No. Oh, it's not us. So then we take the foot off the brake. And then what happened from April of last year? So April of 2020, in that month, 29% of the deaths from COVID were white folks. Mm -hmm. By October and November, it was 55%. Mm. Why? Because we took the foot off the brake because it was only 29%. Why? So well, oh, it's not us. And if, yeah. we, if we had cared, see, if we had cared enough about the harm being done to others, we would have said, hey, we got to shut this shit down right now. It seems like you could extrapolate that to, I mean, climate change, you talk about where is climate change affecting the most, whereas all these things that you right. can you can say, okay, it's not happening to us, we've taken away right. their land, we've taken their resources, it's not our resources getting taken, it's not our areas getting affected. And so right. the world kind of is coming to a head with this, this globally too. I mean, you know, if racism could be the cause of everything just killing everybody. I mean, at the end of the day, and some, not only the, the example of coronavirus is a great example, but I think you can take that into so many different realms too and see how it affects us, but how we use different arguments for those things. But it's all, it really boils down to, we wouldn't let this happen to white communities, the things that we allow to happen in, in black and brown communities around the world. Right. And, and look, if that headline in April of last year was April 7th, New York Times and Washington Post headline, April 7th to 2020 is where we found out that this thing was killing black folk disproportionately mm -hmm. two and a half, three times the rate. If that headline had said disproportionately killing white people, and for that matter, if it had said disproportionately killing younger people as opposed to older, yeah. right? If it had said disproportionately killing otherwise healthy people instead of people with pre-existing oh, you hear all these people talking about, oh, it's just older or they're right. sick anyway. Right. Like, and so, they don't and matter. So is, they can right. die. <laughs> 
Right. So what does that tell you? It tells you that it tells you that it's not just racism. It was racism mm -hmm. and ableism mm -hmm. and ageism. Well, it's a lack of empathy. Because if it, had been rich people, if it had been rich folks, right, if yeah. it had been the executives, if, like, because go back to like 1918, you know, the, the flu pandemic that mm -hmm. killed, you know, so many millions of people around the world. That one actually did. If you, if you do the homework on it, you find that it did kill younger people. I don't really know why that was, but for some reason, it did kill younger people more so than the soldiers, people. a lot of the soldiers, the young right. guys. And, and, and for yeah. some reason, even when it spread, it, it didn't kill older people as much. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but but here's the thing. If that had happened this time, like you had you had these right wingers that were like Ben Shapiro saying, well, you know, I mean, it's sad when an 82 year old dies of COVID. But I mean, you know, median life expectancy is just 80. So yeah, yeah, and so, so my good. point is, my point is, when you when you accept the disposability of black life, right? When you say in effect, black life doesn't mean as much, which is a principle upon which this country is based from the beginning. Don't be surprised when that mentality of human disposability, you know, metastasizes. And so now it isn't just black life is worth less than white life and brown life is worth less than white life. It's also that, you know, working class life of every color is worth less than affluent. Old is worth less than young sick is worth less than healthy and the, and the irony of that right is all of us are going to be sick and old at some point all of us are going to get older so so even if you're not vulnerable now that mentality will catch up to you sure. and so what i want us to think about and you mentioned it with climate it's a good example because all the earliest uh, effects of, of climate change were being felt in africa first mm -hmm. and being felt in in poorer uh, uh, darker parts of, of the of the world. So places to speak. that have been exploited, places that have been raped and pillaged and things right. for hundreds of years. I mean, the land has been just used up and taken. Right. And so the resource exploitation that, that first affects there has now mm -hmm. spread the effects of that, the consequences of that. Uh, mm -hmm. When you think about in this country, the opioid crisis, you can go down the list of all the things right. that right. we know were happening in other communities and we didn't take care of business because we didn't care we just didn't give a shit and so now little jimmy john down at the trailer park you know can't get rehab because mm -hmm. we just have prison cells <laughs> for drug addicts right. all we have is prison mm -hmm. and we know why so what i want us to do is is borrow and this is the great irony of this attack right now on critical race theory one of the important um contributions of critical race theory and it, and its real founder, Derek Bell, was his argument that, and, and a lot of people don't like to hear it, including white liberals, but it, but it's true, and it, he documents it pretty, pretty conclusively, that all of the real progress that's ever been made in this country when it comes to racial equity didn't happen because white folks woke up, you know, from a deep racist slumber and said, oh my gosh, we got to change our ways. It wasn't some enlightenment. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was, I mean, it was for a few, but that wouldn't have been sufficient. What it was, was interest convergence, right? The, rea the realization that the interest of Black people in a given moment happened to dovetail with the interest of the larger society, including white folks. So when you think about <laughs> abolition, that wasn't because Lincoln really gave a shit about Black people. He said he would have sent Black folks back to Africa if he could. Mm -hmm. It was to save the union that he went to war. When the Supreme Court ruled eight to zero with one 
person sitting out the decision on Brown v. Board, um, it wasn't because those 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 Supreme Court justices who had literally been segregationists like a year before right, right. had some moral awakening. It was because they realized the needs of the society demanded change. We were in the middle of a Cold War propaganda war with the Soviet Union at a time when what was happening around the world, brown and black nations were coming out from under the heel of colonialism. How in the hell are you going to sell your model to brown right. and black people if you have your boot on the neck of brown and black people? So we had to take our boot off the neck a little bit and get reform just to put on a pretty face. And I know that sounds cynical. And when Derek, oh, Bell, said it, real. when Derek Bell said it, he meant it a bit cynically. But, yeah. but I'm saying, hey, if that's true, then we can work with that. Let let okay, fine. If if it takes interest convergence, then where are the points right now where we might have some interest convergence? It seems like COVID is one, opioid crisis, lack of healthcare. Why do we not have universal healthcare? Well, the research is done on this. The number number one thing that 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 explains the most highly correlated factor with white opposition to universal health care for all is the belief that black people will cheat the program if we had that that is the number one highly most highly correlated factor for white opposition to those programs what's the irony of that the irony is now i don't support that because i don't want them to cheat the system but then i don't have health care Right. Or I don't have affordable health care. Now, now I'm facing medical bankruptcy, but at least those black people didn't get one over on me. What the hell kind of thing is that? Right. So so we have to talk in those terms of interest convergence. And, and I know there are people who don't like to hear that. There are white liberals who don't like to hear it. There are also black and brown folk who I respect greatly uh, who don't like to hear that because they feel rightly so that white folks ought to you know, oppose white supremacy because it's a moral abomination. I get that. It is. And, and that ought to be enough. But I've been white for 52 years. And 52 years is long enough to know that if you're going to put all of your chips on that marker called white folks get a conscience this week, um, you're, a, you're a much more ambitious gambler than I am. You know, we talk about the world kind of being set up um, and racism kind of building the world that we have right now, what does it look like without racism? Whatever it is, it's gotta be more sustainable and better than this. I, you know, I suspect, look, you're right. I mean, if, if, if the wealth of the white West has been built on exploitation and it has been, then by definition, whatever comes after that system is going to, to, to be less opulent. Um, at least in relative terms. I don't know, you know, uh, the idea that it all is zero sum is, is not necessarily true. It might be that a more equitable society would be a more productive society. It might be that we actually grow the pie when we are more equitable. There is some research to suggest that societies that are more equal actually do better at producing the needs to meet the, the, the things that meet the needs of all those people. So we might actually grow the pie, but, but yeah, is it possible that we will be a less opulent uh, society where some folk are gonna have to do with quite a bit less? Yeah, I would imagine you, that. You know, like I, I like what you said, I think it would, let's find out. I mean, I think it would, it would probably lead to some different level. And not only that, but all, more heads at the table, more brilliance at the table, you'd think there'd be more graceful solutions as well. So whatever came up, we would right. handle it gracefully a little bit more if everybody- Well, and just, and less stress. I mean, part of the stress of this culture is precisely the stress that is generated by profound inequality, right? So if you grow up 
in a society of profound inequality, we'll just we'll just keep it on an economic level for a second before we even think about it in terms of race. You grow up in a in a highly unequal uh, economic system. You are if you're on the top, you're constantly anxious about staying there, and you're always looking behind you to see who's gaining on you. If you're in the middle, you're real anxious because you want to be like these people up here and you're afraid of these people down here and you're afraid of falling. So you're just trying to like make sure you're climbing up. And if you're on the bottom, you are being told by that society, at least in this one, that the reason you're down there is because something wrong with you. So now you're beating yourself up. There's all kind at every level, top, middle and bottom. There is a stress that comes with that level of inequality that isn't healthy for anybody. There's a reason the United States has the highest uh, of all industrialized nations, and even compared to nations that are in the middle of civil wars right now, uh, and over the last 10 or 15 years, higher rates of diagnosable uh, mental illness and emotional disorder. Now, I know there are folks who would say, well, you know, the DSM is, is not necessarily good for non-Western uh, culture, so maybe that's not an accurate gauge, but no matter how you define mental and emotional distress, we have more of it. Why? We're the wealthiest nation. We're the most powerful nation. We have all of this power, all this technology, and we are profoundly unhappy. That, that is either the weirdest coincidence ever, right? That like you can have all that power and all that strength and still be unhappy or the power and the strength is what's making you unhappy, right? Mm -hmm. That you actually are having a hard time coping because the stress of that inequality is, is what gets to you. And on a racial level, that's the stress, right? If white folks have been conditioned to believe that we are deserving of our position and that these people down here are deserving of theirs, then obviously any possibility that some of them are going to come up here, right, and that some of us may, may be down here and that we may be on a more level plane, by definition, that's going to scare the crap out of a lot of white people because yeah. if you believe that they're really inferior, then your only way of, of interpreting that even if you don't believe it consciously, but if you even just believe it at some subconscious level, your only way of interpreting a move toward greater equity is, oh shit, our society is not going to be sustainable. And you may not want to say that outwardly because you know that sounds bad, but like internally, there's a subconscious message that's being sent. And so what kind of stress does that cause? That creates the tension that we have right now. That's not healthy for anybody. And so many white people keep that tension anyway, just because we're not rich as we think we should be, or we're not this thing that we're taught where where is our destiny. If we just work hard enough, we're all supposed to be these millionaires and these Trumps and, and whatever. Everybody thinks that they're just one step away, one decision away. You can have it if you just try hard enough and it doesn't affect, you know, that's a that's a, a without even having to worry about anybody else trying to come up and take a piece of it as well. Um, but I mean, I think just in the the, the sense of the the lessening the distress of black and brown people and the death and that and the carnage that's happened for so long just having that underlying everything we do is is bad for everybody i mean it's it's obviously for black and brown people has been devastating and 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 just to alleviate that would be the the best thing ever for everybody i think in general just spirits hearts minds everything um and whatever else came we could figure out the rest of it you know it's kind of like let's do it right um so i mean we talk about uh, Michelle Wolf, I mean, sorry, Michelle Alexander told uh, about your recent book, uh, Dispatches from the Race War. This is a question I thought of earlier about challenging white folks' truth. And this is what we're talking about here, too, the truth that we're told white folks. So your book, I want to, I just want you to talk a little bit about your new book and tell me about how you, how you kind of, how you get the brainchild for that. How'd you come up with it and what are you trying to put out? I mean, what do you want Well, to I mean, you know, the, that book uh, is, is a product of my, um, 
laziness in one sense. And what I mean by that is rather than write a, a new book with its own thesis and, and development, I just was like, I'm just going to put all these old essays together yeah. and crank out an essay collection, right? So there's a little bit of laziness. I'm going to be honest. Like, like yeah, I, yeah, sure. you know, it's sort of a lack of work ethic. I could have probably done better. But, um, <laughs> but no, I, I, look, I felt as though I had done an essay collection back in, in 09, um, mm -hmm. right after Obama was elected. And I thought, you know, here we are. We've just come out of eight years of, of the Obama presidency. And, and at the time that I was putting the collection together, coming toward the end of the Trump uh, presidency. And uh, I just felt like a lot had happened, obviously, since that last collection yeah. of essays, good, bad, and, 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 and awful, that needed to be reflected upon in a collection so we could look at the trajectory of, of how the country had moved and not moved, how it had changed and not changed, how it had progressed and regressed at the same time over that 12 years. And so uh, the collection begins with an essay that I wrote literally uh, the night of Obama's election. And then it tracks that that period and various, you know, racial issues that emerged during the Obama years going into the Trump years. And then there are some chapters that sort of span both of those eras that deal with white denial, that deal with historical memory, you know, things of that nature. I just wanted to, to have all that in one place so that people can see um, th this, this arc of mini history over that 12 year period and realize how central race and race issues are to virtually everything that happens in America. I, that has always been true, but the last 12 years have really highlighted why and, and how that's true. It's good for everyone, obviously, to hear these things and to have this conversation, but there's a big swath of the population that as you're formulating your newest line of, of argument, which makes a lot of sense, and I think if a lot of people heard that, they would have to think about it and have to question it. There's, you've had death threats, you've had people, uh, you know, obviously th throughout the course of your history, um, you know, really threatened by what you say and what you're talking about. And what is the, how do you, how do you take that on? I mean, how do you present this in front of groups that may need to hear it and have that argument presented where they can actually kind of maybe come to some sort of different decision on it without like, you know, getting yourself killed? Well, to be honest, I don't I don't worry a lot about trying to put that argument out to the hardcore conservative right wing people. I'm not you know, I'm of the opinion that we, we sometimes spend too much time mm -hmm. trying to do the conversion narrative, right, trying to get right wingers to see the error of their ways or trying to get overt racists to see the error of their ways. It happens sometimes that you can make inroads with those folks. But I just think that by and large, that's not the best use of our time. So even this book that I've just described that I want to work on now and am working on, I don't really anticipate that being aimed at like a readership of Fox News and One American News Network and Newsmax people. I, I mean, if they look, if some of them end up seeing it and it great, wonderful. But but I'm more interested in crafting these narratives, whether it's in essay form or book form, for two other reasons other than conversion. One is inoculation, right? So think about, even when we think about the, the COVID vaccine, we know that that's not gonna cure you if you already have it, but it might inoculate you with some boosters needed down the road against another round of it, right? And, and so I think of this as well, this, this can be inoculation. There are millions of people, uh, especially young people, right? Who are online, 
They're on chat boards. They're in private chat rooms. They're on video game servers. They're on, you know, 4chan, 8chan. They're on social media. And they're being hit with a lot of really overtly racist shit. And, and I don't think that we've done enough to inoculate them against that, right? It isn't, it isn't that all of them are going to become anti-racist activists. A lot of people are never going to be activists. It's just not who they are. We don't need everybody to necessarily be in the street yelling for justice. We just need to make sure that we're not having a new generation of young people co-opted by the far right and by fascism. That too is a victory. So if we can get some of this anti-racist thinking into the hands and the heads of neutral people who are neutral right now who don't really know what to think or have never thought about this that can be like an inoculation that can prevent them from becoming a problem and that's an important piece the second thing is getting these narratives in the hands of other reasonably liberal and progressive people who still need a reminder of why this is so important right i remember being a young person when i was like 18 19 going to college and i remember if you asked me let's say back in the day uh, how do you feel about like affirmative action, right? Which is a very minor equity initiative, but an important one. And that's why it's under attack. Um, I would have told you, oh, I'm for it. But if you would really ask me like, well, can you defend it? Like I probably could have done better than most because I came out of a debate background. I wouldn't have felt super confident until I started reading some really amazing, important history stuff, sociology stuff, right? And then I started formulating my ideas. So it made me a better advocate because I was exposed, right? And so if we can get this analysis an anti-racist analysis in the hands of people who say they're progressive and anti-racist, but maybe don't have the courage of their convictions. Mm -hmm. It can give them the courage of their convictions. When you have the courage of your convictions, you're a better organizer. You're a better activist. You're more likely to go out and vote. You're more likely to go out and do other stuff, community organizing, whatever it is. You're more likely to talk to your neighbor or talk to your family member or challenge them. If you don't feel confident doing that because you don't have the information, right? You might shy away from these discussions. We can't afford that. So I'm not necessarily worried about taking people from the church of the right wing and putting them in the church of the left wing, so to speak. I just am interested in inoculation and mobilization. That, and makes a lot of sense. That, that should be enough. That it's just such an outsized influence on the country, the right wing. I mean, it's such a minority but with, with such, I mean, through all the gerrymandering, through all the electoral college, through all that stuff, it seems like throughout the history of the country, people like yourself and people like myself who try to create this change, people like everybody who try to create a change, you keep coming up against this wall every time. I mean, it's like every 20 years, there's a new revolution. Every 20 years, there's a new uh, movement. And the outsized influence of this group, it, somehow it has to be cut down or somehow it has to be neutralized in some way or another, right? I mean, doesn't that seem like, how do you how, how do you do that without taking it directly to that group or how do you do that without directly dividing it up or breaking down that power structure well i mean you do have to break down that power structure it's just a question of what's your what's your path to that and i think the difference is there are a lot of people who think that the path to that is by you know getting a bunch of people to totally change their views and and if people want to do that i'm all for it but i think the bigger thing is look politics is about power and it is about numbers. And, and the reality is some people on the left sometimes get, we get very squeamish around power because we want to, we want to build bridges and people on the, on the progressive side of things want to want everybody to be on the same page. We want to have community and we want to have, and I, and I'm all for that. 
But the reality is sometimes you just got to steamroll folks and, yeah. and you have to. And the only way that you're going to do that is by building up your own base of people, mobilizing them, keeping them out there doing the work and inoculating those truly sort of middle ground people. So some of them will come over to your side, but at the very least, you don't want them going over to the other side. And then you just have to you just have to work harder and smarter and out organize people because the problems that you just identified are, are that's the proof that the problem is systemic. The fact that we keep having to recreate this struggle every generation, right, proves the systemic nature of the problem. That was the whole point of critical race theory was to answer one question. The whole reason it was developed is to answer the question, why is it that in spite of the very real victories of the civil rights era, these profound inequities remain in place and not that much has changed? That was the question that the crits were trying to answer. And, and the answer was, well, because the problem is deeper than that. The problem is systemic and it's ingrained. And then the right wing's answer was, well, the problem is black people. And, and so that's where we're at is, is making sure people understand the systemic nature, the reason that the filibuster is so hard to change, the reason that the electoral college is so hard to change, the reason that we have two senators per state so that the state of Wyoming has more representation on a per capita basis by what, like 20 times more representation than California or something. These are all things that have remained in place, not only because they serve white supremacy. I'm not gonna say that's the only reason, but trust me, they serve white supremacy. If they didn't, they would have been gone, right? If they did not serve to, to maintain that system, they would have been eradicated, but they work really well to empower a group that is increasingly not the majority of the uh, of the country, a group that is diminishing in terms of population, but whose political power has not diminished uh, commensurate with the population size. And so that's why those things remain in place. That's the systemic nature of the problem. And we have to get people to think in those terms, which itself is difficult because our culture is constructed on the idea that the, that the individual is the unit of analysis, right? In everything, we're, we're, we're hyper-individualistic as a culture. So whatever it is, good or bad, is about good people or bad people. And so if we just, if we can just make people better, then the problem will go away. Well, I mean, yeah, if you could do that, you know, but people are messed up, man. All of us are messed up. We're all flawed and damaged people. And what damages us it really is the systems within which we operate. We get conditioned by those systems. We're growing up in a culture right now that absolutely trains us all to accept inequality, right? The fact that people turn against it is a miracle because the system says, why would you do that? This country says, as its number one guiding principle, the cornerstone of our, of our secular gospel, Genesis 1-1 and the Bible of Americanism is what? Anybody can make it in America if they try hard. So if you didn't make it, it's your own damn fault, right? All you Anybody can make it. If you believe that and you've never been taught how to think about that, how to interrogate that, how to challenge and push back on that, then you're going to look around and you're going to see inequality and you're going to go, well, shit, what can we do, right? I mean, they just must not work as hard. So, so rationalization, justification of inequality is the coin of the realm in this culture, that is a, you know, so getting people to challenge that, man, it's like going into church and right after the, the, the minister has just done the, the sermon, standing up in the third row of pews or whatever and being like, hey, that was lovely, but uh, there's no God, right? So why are we here? Like that doesn't go over well. And the same is true when you push back on that notion of meritocracy and rugged individualism. But if we don't push back on that, this thing is not going to change. That's the task in front of us. Now, quick question, and I know this is, I, I asked for an hour and I don't want to overextend my time here, but All if right. you don't mind me, just another question. 
how on a personal note, Tim Wise, you know, you you've been doing this work for a long time, but those those things that you talked about right there are ingrained in our systems. And as a white man, you know, how has your journey been or your struggle been with the things that are impressed upon us that we're not always aware of, or you know, the idea that uh, meritocracy and the judgmental nature that is kind of pushed into us. How is that? How, how is that? And how does that continue? How do you continue to work on your own uh, whiteness and your own maleness? Well, I mean, part of that, it's a, it's a lifelong struggle to actually remind myself um, of the role of my identities as a white person, as a man, as a heterosexual, a cisgendered person, um, a college educated person, uh, you know, someone who's now economically uh, stable, I'm not going to say uh, affluent, but stable and, uh, you know, to where I don't have to look at the receipt on the ATM anymore uh, to know that I've got some money in there. So that's that's a stability that I didn't have growing up. Um, I, I have to remind myself that that truth, all of those truths are connected to identity. My success um, is, is only partly about my work. Like I told you earlier, I, I'm, I, my work ethic is not real good. Um, if it was, I would have written 20 books. Uh, you know, if, I would have gotten a lot more accomplished if I really had a good work ethic. But I've worked just hard enough and had the advantages of whiteness and maleness and all those things to amplify my voice. And I, and I, and I have to remain humble about that. I think, I think part of the, the work for all of us is a degree of radical humility. And I don't just mean for white men. I mean, like, generally, in American culture, we, we don't have enough humility vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. People who are affluent, regardless of race, don't have enough humility vis-a-vis -vis working class and lower income poor folk. Um, people who are straight don't have enough humility and cisgendered vis-a-vis -vis LGBTQ folk. Um, you know, people, just humans don't have enough humility vis-a-vis non-human species and the way we exploit them and damage them. So, so we need a kind of humility that can put in perspective where we are, like in our path of life. And even, even our knowledge, we need to be humble about. Like even to the extent we wanna take credit for some of our individual successes. Well, let's say, what's the source of that credit? Well, you know, I studied really hard and I worked, well, okay, but, but somebody had to write those books that you read when you were studying. Somebody had to do that work that you then learned from. You had to have teachers that taught you. So like all these books behind me right here, which I did not read them all, by the way. So sometimes people are like, you read? No, I didn't read all oh, these. That's impressive. They just look really good on the shelf and I'm trying to get to them all. But the point is, even if I read them all and I had like this huge base of knowledge, well, okay, but that wouldn't just be me, right? It would be all these authors. It would be all these people who provided me with that knowledge. So even that I would need to be humble about. I was fortunate to have certain people come into my life as mentors, as teachers, um, that, that exposed me to certain things. I had a, I had a mom that, that put me in a preschool that was you know mostly black kids at a historically black college in the early childhood ed program there. That shaped my understanding of peer groups. It shaped my understanding of authority figures because it was mostly black women running the show there like that. I didn't do anything to deserve that. Right. I just got really lucky to have that and have that open my eyes to some things which 99% of white people who don't have that would, wouldn't get like that's not I, I don't get any credit for that. I can't be like, look how smart I am because I understand whiteness. What? No, I mean, that's just I'm really lucky. I'm not any smarter than anybody else when it comes to that, but I've been exposed to some things. And so if we can have some humility around how we came to understand whatever it is we understand, 
how, how we came to succeed at whatever it is we've been successful at, it would change the whole dynamic of the culture. Because right now, what makes it so easy not to push for change is that conceit that says, I got mine, y'all get yours. And if I understand that I could have been y'all and you could have been me. And, and, and if I had, if I hadn't had some good fortune and luck and some unearned privilege, my life would be very, very different. And if someone else had had that luck that I had or had the privilege that I had, then they would have been where I'm at. Right. So you can't get haughty about, about where you are in life. And unfortunately we live in a culture that encourages that haughtiness, that encourages that, that, that ego, that encourages that lack of humility more than probably any culture on earth. Uh, uh, and that's going to be a hard slog, I think, for those of us who are trying to create equity. But that is what the task is. And that's why it's important to, to, to talk about humility as a value, uh, not, to, not to take away from people's hard work, but to say, look, man, every most people work hard in a society where you have to where you die most people work hard most people around the world work hard people that live in poor countries work harder than i've ever worked right but they don't have what i have so it's not about saying my great grandfather when he came here from russia you know a stereotypical jewish immigrant with 18 cents and a ball of lint in his pocket or whatever the hell story we like to tell he worked i worked 18 hours a day but he also was able to get jobs right off the boat in new york city when he got here that had been off limits to black folk for 35 years. That doesn't take away from his hard work for me to acknowledge that. It just means that I'm going to put his hard work in a box marked opportunity structure, right? Like he, he was met with an opportunity structure which helped facilitate that hard work and make it pay off. That doesn't, that doesn't that's not a slap at him. It's, it's a way of saying, man, imagine what other folks could have done if their hard work had been met with that same opportunity structure. Imagine right? what the world would look like. Imagine where, where we'd be, you know, I always talk about being on some Star Trek, you know, we could be on a whole nother galaxies, understandings of the universe, whatever, if, if that were the case, yeah, I think on some levels. Right. Um, I can't thank you enough uh, for all this brilliance and, and really thank taking you. the time to spend with me and, and the folks that are gonna be listening to this podcast. I'm sure we're gonna get a lot of, a lot of great response and. And hopefully, you know, we can come back and do this again sometime. I'd love to have you on as things progress and you got new things going on. Sounds good. I hope to get back to, to Fayetteville and we'll do this in person sometime. That'd be great, man. I'm looking forward to that. So, All right, cool. Take care. Cool. Thanks, Tim. All right, man.